Let's stand together at this time as we reverence sin, the reading of God's Word. Today we're going to be looking at a message I call, A Soul That Prospers. Third uh, John, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. May God bless the reading of his word is my prayer. You may be seated. I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. This is a text, of course, written by John the Apostle. I've mentioned several times he was the first and the last of the apostles. At this time, he's simply introduced as the elder. We saw him often refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But by this time, there really wasn't anyone else. He'd lived a remarkable life of service and, yes, of suffering. And even at the time of this writing, there was more suffering to come. Part of the suffering is just uh, the enduring of life and the tragedies that it brings. He'd long ago witnessed the death of his brother James, the first of the Christian martyrs after Stephen, the first of the apostles, uh, rather. He had witnessed since then the death of Peter, of all the others. Paul, all just friends. Life does that to us. As more and more end up on the other side of glory. Now he's just the elder. He was a young man when Jesus called him. Now he's old. He writes the gospel that bears his name. He writes these three epistles and the apocalypse that we know more about its English name, Revelation. This one begins with a rare New Testament subject. Mentioned twice in this verse, prosperity, prosper. Only two other passages in the New Testament refer to it. 1 Corinthians 16 and 2. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Romans chapter 1 and verse 10, the other, making requests, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. Obviously then, the New Testament uses the word prosperity in reference to financial blessings as God has prospered you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we should on the first day of the week make our gift, our offerings as God hath prospered us. Uh, Other times it is a more general sense as it does in Romans chapter 1. Paul was praying for a prosperous journey and in that he simply meant he wasn't looking for financial prosperity out of the journey. He wasn't on a business trip hoping that it was going to be blessed. Uh, when he said, I want to make a prosperous journey, he was saying, I, I want a safe trip. I want everything to go well. Pray for me. He didn't get it, by the way. Uh, that journey to Rome was not a safe trip. It ended up in a shipwreck. Uh, loss of cargo, but not the loss of life, interestingly, the Bible points out. He did get to Rome. Not as he had expected. He got there as a prisoner, but he did make it. But he asked him to pray for a prosperous journey. 
I mention all three of these passages because these are the three times that the New Testament mentions prosperous and prosperity, prospered. Three times, three passages. If you listen to very much uh, TV preaching, you might think that the whole Bible is about prosperity. In fact, we, we've, got a, we've got a whole genre of preachers out there these days that refer to themselves and are commonly called prosperity preachers. Uh, most of their texts, though, if they're honest with the text, come out of the Old Testament, and there was a lot of it in there, about uh, over 40 different references in the Old Testament to prosperity, probably the most famous one, Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 17. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth, and you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. You see, God made a covenant with Israel, and that covenant involved their being in the land. And he told them that if they would live in that land and they would obey his law, then he would bless them and he would prosper them and he would give them the power to get wealth. That's what this passage says. He warned them that when that happened, uh, you might look at this and say, well, I did this on my own. People might be inclined to think that uh, God uh, didn't help them at all, and so he reminds them that it's God then who gave them the power to get wealth. God gave them that land. God chose them. God promised to bless them. And of course he did. The principle, though, of God's blessings on our labor carries over into the New Testament. Though we're not under the same covenant that Israel is, and there's a new covenant now in Jesus Christ, still there is that promise of blessing. Lay by in store. Make an offering as the Bible says, as God hath prospered you. As God has prospered you. Right up front then, we observe that there are things that we can do that will have an impact on our prosperity. Uh, whether it be of a physical or of a spiritual level, the two things that are mentioned in our text, uh, uh, John would pray for uh, this beloved Gaius and say, I, I pray that above all things you might prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. And so within those two things, our prosperity and our health, we know that we certainly can have an impact on both of those. We don't know how much money we can make, but we know one thing, we can spend more. Amen. Probably not a good time to bring that up, right? Uh, we can always spend more that we make. Americans could certainly give a lot of testimony to the fact that credit cards make it easy to buy things that you can't afford. 30% interest, yeah, my goodness. Making payments has become an American way of life, and it's easy to feel the pinch of bad financial decisions. You see, we can... Ha make decisions. We can do things that have an effect on our financial well-being, our financial prosperity. While that's true in a negative way, it's also true in a positive way. We can work hard. We can save. We can live frugally, live within our means, pay as we go. Uh, a lost concept in many parts of America. We can make good financial choices, work hard, save, and it'll have a lot to do with whether we're living in prosperity 
We talk about our health, same thing. Lifestyle choices can affect our health, our diet, our exercise, or lack thereof. Things like smoking, chewing, drinking, recreational drug use, all of these things can and do affect our health. So what I'm saying when it comes to just this whole concept of prosperity and being in health, we know that what we do can have a big part and whether we are enjoying prosperity or enjoying good health or whether we are suffering from the lack of prosperity or maybe suffering from poor health, a lot of both of those things we can bring on ourselves. That's true. We also know that there are other things that can affect us. On the health side, there's things like diabetes and cancer. Uh, they strike without rhyme or reason regardless of our lifestyle choices. On the financial side, governmental decisions can obviously lock us into an inflationary spiral where our wages can't possibly keep up with the rising prices, taxes skyrocket, and the buying power of our savings and investments plummets faster than the interest rates increases. A lot of things can happen that affect our health that are outside of our control. If we have nothing to do with that. A lot of things can happen on the financial side that are outside of our control. We have nothing to do with. So we could say there are things on the prosperity and health side. There are things that are within our control, things that are out of our control that can affect both of this. But beyond these things then... I want to bring to you a perspective of how being a believer in Christ makes a difference about this whole issue of prosperity and health. Because John prays for Gaius, I want to pray that you might prosper and be in health just as your soul prospers. Obviously, Gaius had a prospering soul. His soul was prospering. And the elder John could lift his eyes to God and did. And under inspiration wrote it down for us all to see and pray confidently. I pray that you might prosper and be in health as your soul prospers. Could we ask God to do that for us? Could we confidently pray, God, I want you to help me to prosper and enjoy health as my soul prospers. God clearly made some promises to the righteous. I want to bring you a famous passage, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. Oh. What a passage. God also acknowledges the downside of prosperity. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 21, there's a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Also in that same passage, by the way, he mentioned it. This wasn't the only time he mentioned that. And he said, who's to tell whether he'll be a wise man or a fool? Proverbs 132, for the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. I think about that a lot. The prosperity of fools. I think about how many people have experienced what a, a Fox News article some months ago called the curse of, of the lottery. And it talked about how many people had hit the lottery and suddenly had just gained these millions and millions of dollars. And it destroyed them. Destroyed their family. What is it? They're living out what Proverbs 1 says, the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. Prosperity can kill you. can destroy your life. Jeremiah twenty two twenty one. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not hear. This has been your manner from your youth that you did not obey my voice. God looked down at a people that he had prospered. And in their prosperity, they stopped listening to God. wonder how many times God says that over America today. I've prospered you. Now you won't listen to me. You won't hear my word rejected me psalm 73 and 12 behold these are the ungodly who prosper in the world they increase in riches don't think that it's just the blessings of god that makes people prosper there's a lot of wicked people who prosper in this world the bible acknowledges that if you looked at the top uh, most wealthy people in america today and ask yourself the question, are these people committed Christians? Do they believe in Jesus Christ? Are they living by the truth of Scripture? Are they following God? There are the ungodly who prosper in the world and they increase in riches. The Bible acknowledges that too. All of these things this morning are kind of designed just to give us a scattershot, a brief look at what the Bible says about prosperity in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Yes, God promises to bless his people. He does. And he does. But then there is also the prosperity of the wicked. Does that happen? Yes, it does. Can prosperity ruin people? Yes. Yes. There's a downside to it as well. While all of this is true, our message today is primarily going to be devoted to the second part of John's statement. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. As much as we are interested in prosperity of a financial nature and, and prosperity of a general nature, we want to have a prosperous life. We want to have a prosperous family. We want to enjoy prosperity. And yet here's this simple statement. To prosper as your soul prospers. Is your soul prospering today? 
What does spiritual prosperity look like? I want to share a few things uh, briefly with you today. First of all, of course, a prospering soul is a saved soul. It has to begin here. It has to begin with that knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. The the writer of the book of Hebrews puts it this way, Hebrews 10, 38. Now the just shall live by faith, that if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews uh, places believing uh, up against drawing back. And drawing back simply means to not believe. Here's a person who looks at it, but they turn away. They draw back. Instead of clinging to God, they turn away from him. Very beautiful imagery, very powerful imagery of what it means to reject. So here's a person who believes, here's a person who draws back, who turns away, who sees the truth but walks away. I pray that will not be true in this building today, that some of you might see the truth of the gospel and leave out of here without receiving Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You'd see your need and yet say no to him. I pray it doesn't happen to anyone watching us from home by television today or on your computer or by phone, however you're picking this up. I pray it doesn't happen to you, but it can. It does. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, we're not among those. He's speaking then to those who have believed, he says, to the saving of the soul. There is no soul prosperity without spiritual life. Without salvation, the soul is dead to the things of God. You can come to church. You may belong to a church. You may have been baptized as an infant. You may have been baptized as a child. You may enjoy a good service. You might can walk in here and look around and appreciate the beauty. You might can enjoy the holiday season. Say, I love Christmas. You have all those things and yet not be saved because you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ so that you experience the new birth. You don't commune with God or fellowship with God, and you don't really miss it. You have no longing for spiritual things because you have no spiritual life. The Bible says that before you are saved, we all had that common experience. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Though we were alive, we were spiritually dead to the things of God. Modern people have a good understanding of this. Don't you just love going to the dentist? Come out and talk about this. That lidocaine or whatever that stuff is that they give you, man, I tell you, there's times I wish we could just inject it up into my head because I got that crushing headache and make it go away. But it don't work that way. I understand. I understand. But there we are. All of a sudden, part of us has no feeling. Sin is spiritual lidocaine it does that to our hearts though your heart is pumping blood though physically you're alive you're spiritually deadened to the things of God it don't mean you can't come to church it don't mean you can't belong to a church it don't mean you can't sing don't mean you can't enjoy a good song doesn't mean you can't appreciate the beauty of a season doesn't mean any of those things but it does mean that you have no spiritual life in you and you are dead to the things of God you have no relationship with him you can't because God is life and you're dead in your trespasses and sins 
I've got good news for you today. There is something that can get through the deadness. <laughs> you know what it is? It's the Word of God. Yeah, Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said, No man can come to me except the Father should draw him. Of how the Spirit would convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. As preachers, we talk about this as being under conviction because of what Jesus said there in, in John uh, chapter 14 and 15 and 16 when he promised the work of the Holy Spirit and how that he would convict or convince us of sin and of righteousness and judgment. What is that? It is what happens to us when we come into a service like this and the Word of God is preached and the gospel is preached and we feel that inside of us. It's not the power of human persuasion. It is the power of the Spirit of God as He works using the gospel of Jesus Christ, fulfilling the promise that Paul mentioned so well in Romans chapter 1 when he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What is that? It is the power of the gospel as it infused in with the power of the Holy Spirit. We say, we'll be saved any time that we want to. No, you won't. No, you won't. Why? Because you won't want to. <laughs> Bible says that there's none that seeketh after God. It takes that convicting power of the Holy Spirit to convince us that we're lost and that we need to be saved. Now, it doesn't matter whether you're 8, 18, or 80. There's no time limit on God's conviction. But there's also no guarantee it is possible that a person can harden their hearts too many times. They say no too many times. You see, waiting is dangerous. And if where you're sitting right now, you are feeling that conviction, I would encourage you, don't even wait to the invitation. Don't wait till I get done. You can sit right where you are and say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I know it. Forgive me of my sins. Be my Savior. And He will. He will. Call upon Him. Call upon the name of the Lord. And you will be saved. Salvation comes by grace through faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved. Has there been a time in your life where you asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior where you believed on him and what he did on you for you on Calvary when he died, was buried, and rose again. Have you been saved? Your soul isn't prospering if you're unsaved. Secondly, then, a prospering soul is what I'm going to call an anchored soul. Another great passage out of Hebrews, Hebrews 6, 19. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. An anchor of the soul. An anchor of the soul. This passage speaks of those who have fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope set before us. It's almost the same identical imagery that he would use later in chapter 10 when he talked about those who have believed as opposed to those who turned away and those who rejected or who drew back. 
But here he's speaking of those who have fled for refuge. And isn't that wonderful imagery to what happened to us when we were saved? What we do? We fled to God for refuge. For refuge from what? From his judgment against our sin. This passage then speaks to us and it brings to us the understanding that when we have fled to God for a refuge, that that hope or anticipation of our salvation becomes like an anchor for the soul. Any fisherman knows what an anchor does for you. The wind starts blowing you around and the anchor holds you in place. There's a lot that is blowing us around in our culture and in our world today. But thank God, if you're a believer in Christ, you have an anchor that keeps a soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Yeah, you have an anchor. And that anchor is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. This is not a hope. That we would express this way. Well, I hope I'm saved. No, that's not it. Uh, This is the kind of hope that is the hope for eternal life. It says, I know I'm going to get it, but I had not got it yet. I, I know it's coming. I know I'm going to be in heaven, but I'm not there yet. I know I'm going to be spending eternity with God in Jesus Christ, but I'm not there yet. Hope, the anticipation of eternal life. This means our life is not hopeless. That means as a Christian, a believer in Christ, we never spend a hopeless minute because our hope's in Jesus Christ. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 5 and verse 24. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. This is the anchor of the soul, eternal life. Eternal life. Now understand, this is a complicated theological issue. There's a lot of people who believe that you could be saved and then be lost, and then be saved and then be lost, and then be saved and be lost. Great evangelist Walter K. Ayers was famous for saying, you know, God doesn't have a bigger racer up in heaven. Write him down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Oh, race him out. Write him down. Yeah, write him back. Have his back again. Race him out. I'm a simple guy, so that that made a lot of uh, sense to me. God doesn't have an eraser up in heaven. He writes us down in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus said it, I give unto them eternal life. Why? (coughs) Because they believe on me. I give unto them then eternal life. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath, present tense, hath, present tense, everlasting life. And in case that's not enough, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. That's John 5, 24. Jesus said it. Passed from death and life. There's a lot of things in life that we can afford to be uncertain about. And a lot of things in life that we're going to be uncertain about whether we want to or not. I don't know what next year is going to bring. Don't know. What's the stock market going to do? I don't know. It's probably going to go down, probably come back up. I don't know. I don't know. 
A lot of things in life we're uncertain about. A lot of things we're going to be uncertain about regardless. But there is one thing we can't afford to be uncertain about. And that is eternal life. What's going to happen to you when this whole thing stops doing this? What's going to happen then? It's appointed unto man wants to die. But after this, the judgment... A lot of things we can be uncertain about. It doesn't really bother us. It just we learn to live with it. A lot of things, no matter what our preferences are, we're going to be uncertain about. But there's one thing we have to be certain about. Eternal life. Do you have it? There's only one way to get it. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life a soul that prospers then is a saved soul a soul that prospers is an anchored soul because we have eternal life and we know it lastly a prospering soul is a sanctified soul Simon Peter gave us some important commands about why it's significant for us to avoid sinful behavior and to live in a way that honors and obeys God in our life. Sanctified simply means set apart. Set apart. Specifically set apart to God. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. A lot of things our flesh wants to do. But isn't that a powerful image? They war against the soul. There was a time in the Old Testament when the people of God grew tired of the manna that God gave them. And they cried out for something different. And God sent them quail. And the Bible said they ate quail then until they got sick of quail. Now, I, I like a, a good mess of quail. Some of you may have never eaten quail. I'm sorry for you. It's a little drier than chicken, but it's, uh, it's pretty good. They ate quail, though, till it came out of their nostrils. You know what God was saying. The psalmist then would refer to that years later, and he would write that he, God gave them what they wanted, but he sent leanness into their soul. That's what lust does. A lot of things that we want, but they war against the soul. That's not a prospering soul. Peter would mention it again in reference to Lot, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 8, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. What a message that is for us today. You can torture your soul by what you watch and what you listen to. Yeah. 2 Peter 2 and 8. Paul adds in this thought in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. Who also will do it. 
spirit and soul are often used interchangeably in Scripture, and we use it that way, but obviously it isn't always that way because this passage mentions both the spirit and the soul. Here it speaks of our person or our personality. There's a lot of people who are saved and born again, but their personality, their person, who they are, their character is not what it should be. And oftentimes it's because the physical side of life has taken over. Paul describes in this marvelous state of balance so that we're obeying God, serving Him, loving Him, and living for Him. We're set apart to Him so that our spirit, soul, and body are all sanctified unto God, set apart to Him. And this helps us in to avoid that plague that so often comes with the blessings of God. It gives a a person who is a child of God a different perspective on life. I I love the movie Shenandoah. I I try to pull it up somewhere and watch it uh, once a year or so. or It's been a while, so I'm probably due another time to watch it. Uh, Jimmy Stewart played the lead character, raising a family. He was trying to sit out the Civil War and not having much uh, success at it. Shenandoah. But I remember the scene from that movie where he prayed a prayer before his family ate their dinner. And he said, and many of you might remember this, and some of you haven't, uh, he said, Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, sowed it, and harvested. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here, and we wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel morsel but we thank you just the same anyway lord for this food we're about to eat amen and then they dug in you see sanctification sets us apart it means we have a different perspective down to our character where it's not just our soul our part of having a prospering soul then speaks of our character how we view life and the living of it. As believers, we understand how fragile our life is. We understand how short it is. We understand how protected we are. And we understand how blessed we are. We see God's blessings even in our suffering. We see tribulations and trials, and they too bring blessings all their own. Some of our most precious gifts, by the way. We understand that disobedience and chastening could change everything just like that. See, this morning, we don't know a whole lot about Gaius, but we know that his soul was prospering. He was a saved man. He had the same eternal security that we all have. And, And those two things, knowing that we're saved and knowing that we are eternally secure, then gives us the desire to be set apart to God and living as he intended. Gaius was not a perfect man, but the elder could pray confidently for God to bless him. 
I want to share with you this morning, in summary, God wants to bless us more than we want to be blessed. It's a great principle for us to remember. And so if we're longing for the blessings of God and not experiencing, then perhaps we need to ask ourselves the question, am I blessable? Am I blessable? I want to remind you that people who are unsaved may get wealth, and they do. But only God's people can truly be blessed of God. I did not make that statement haphazardly. Only God's people can truly be blessed of God. People who are unsaved lose everything when they die. They lose it all. When God's people die, they live out the biblical promise to live as Christ and to die as gain. Paul put it this way in 1 Timothy 4 and 8, and I just want to read this for you. It's not on the screen. I want you to listen. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. Having promise of the life that now is, that is living for God, promises God's blessings on the life that we live right now. Having a promise for the life that now is and for that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. The Bible doesn't often amen itself, but when it does, we should notice. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach. Because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. This is why we labor, and yes, this is why we suffer. Why? Because we trust in the living God. Because we know that godliness has a promise for this life and for the life that is to come. I want to ask you this morning, is your soul prospering? Do you know where you're sitting that you're saved? Are you secure in that knowledge? So it's not a hope so, maybe so, think so, might be so. But I know so. I know. And then, are we living our life for God? Let's stand together, please.